Thank you, Pastor. That was good. I um, <clears throat> came here about four or five or six years ago. How long have you been here? Six years ago. And um, <clears throat> I got into some allergies, lost my voice, and tried to preach one night. It lasted about 15 minutes. Uh, I think it goes down as the shortest sermon I've ever preached. <clears throat> I've had people say, you don't even know how to preach a half-hour sermon. I said, oh, yeah, I preach two or three of them every Sunday. <clears throat> and so anyway, so here I am, and I started noticing this. <clears throat> on uh, Friday that I was starting to get a little congestion. I could tell it was this allergy stuff. <clears throat> now I've struggled to talk all day. And uh, wouldn't you know, just the night I meant to sing during a sermon, it's not going to happen. So <laughs> I had some men back there rejoicing about that a while ago. <clears throat> our, I, I've often reminded folks of our deaf piano player that used to be at our church that said when he heard me sing, he wishes he was deaf as well as blind. He was a blind man. Did I say deaf? Yes. He was a blind man. And he said when he heard me sing, he wishes he was deaf as well as blind. So that's pretty bad, isn't it? But we're going to give it a try. All I can do is try. <clears throat> I'm going to drink heavy. This is water. <laughs> Got to get that straight. <clears throat> and one of your members came by and said, have you tried whiskey? Then he started laughing like that, so. The answer is no. I've never tried that, but anyway. John chapter 4. <clears throat> John <clears throat> and chapter 4. John chapter 4. <clears throat> for those of you that are with us here the first time for the meeting, <clears throat> we started yesterday morning in John chapter 4. And uh, talking about Jesus, <clears throat> the living water. We mentioned the fact that there <clears throat> are two sources from which men may drink. And <clears throat> one source would be wells or, as stated by Jeremiah, man-made cisterns, which are broken cisterns, is what the prophet Jeremiah said by inspiration of God. And uh, <clears throat> those broken cisterns can be very damaging, not satisfying. And then there is a well or a spring. And God said in Jeremiah chapter 2, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And uh, so there is the fountain of living water and there is man-made wells or cisterns and you can see the vast difference between the two. The fountain of living water is God himself. And Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So we talked about that yesterday morning. And last night <clears throat> we spoke uh, about Jesus uh, as he encountered the woman at the well. And uh, as he talked to her, you come down to verse number uh, 14 and 15, 13, 14, and 15. And Jesus said that uh, if she would ask, he would give her the water to drink. <clears throat> and in verse 15, the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. 
<clears throat> now many would expect, I'm sure, that right then and there, Jesus said, then drink. But he shocks her. He stuns even the sensitive minds of people today. He said to the woman, go get your husband. And he knew her. He knew that she had had five husbands and that she was living with a man now that was not her husband. He knew that. So he wanted her to drink of the living water, but you cannot drink of the living water until you deal with your sin. And Jesus called attention to her sin. The story goes on. Look down in verse number 27. Let's start our reading there. And why don't we stand together? <clears throat> and I would apologize for this sound, but I, it's the best I got. I can't help it. And so we're going to do the best we can and ask God to help us. Paul said, when I'm weak, then am I strong. Maybe God will use times of weakness to really say something to us. So I, I encourage you to tune in. And it's never so much in the delivery of the sermon as it is the truth and the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's depend on him for that. <clears throat> I said verse 27. Let's look at verse 25. The woman saith unto him, <clears throat> I know <clears throat> that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. She was a Samaritan. She had enough understanding of the Jews. She would have been part Jew herself to know that they were looking for a Messiah. Many of the Samaritans embraced part of what they knew from Judaism and part of what they knew from paganism. They were mixed up people. She was a confused lady. The woman saith unto him, I know the Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come, See a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, <clears throat> Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four years, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman 
which testified he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. <clears throat> I think if we would really do our best to understand the times, to understand the vast difference in the Samaritans and the Jews, the despite they had for one another, the hate they had, the resentment that lived among them. That's why so unusual that Jesus would pass through Samaria. Usually they would go around to avoid any contact with the Samaritans. And to see what is taking place here is such an incredible and awesome thing. And um, I heard a preacher say one time, and I borrowed it many times, hey, this isn't a fairy tale. This actually happened. This is God at work. I call this series Jesus at Work at the Well. And Jesus is definitely at work at the well. The title of the sermon, I'm big on titles. Usually I'm more impressed with my titles than anybody else. But still, I work on the titles. One word, changed. Changed. Father, <clears throat> we pray your blessings now upon this time together. I'm standing here wishing with everything in me that my voice was clear and normal and I could preach unhindered. I, I really, really wish that and ask you for that. <clears throat> and I know that it can be annoying uh, for folks to try to listen in such a situation. I know also that your Holy Spirit is able to overcome anything that we consider to be an obstacle. And we're asking you to help in that way tonight. I pray that the little struggle here with the voice would not hinder the message and what we need to hear. And I pray that we would have ears to hear and that our hearts would be wide open to your word and that you might accomplish your purpose through this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you and God bless. You may be seated. <clears throat> Louis Zapparini <clears throat> was a promising Olympic runner in the 1940s and had a very promising um, prospect of running in the next Olympics for the United States of America. However, he was drafted into World War II. He was shot down over the Pacific, was taken to a Japanese a prison camp after surviving 60 days at sea. And for three years, he was in the Japanese prison camp 
tortured and went through excruciating misery and torture while he was there. When he came out, he was a man full of anger, full of bitterness for what had transpired in his life. He married a young woman that attracted his attention he thought would be the answer to his bitterness and to all the turmoil and the resentment and the hate that had built up within him. But she couldn't change him. He turned to whiskey and became a drunk. He was about to lose his marriage. In desperation, his wife coerced him to go to a revival meeting. When I say coerced him, she didn't really come totally clean with the type of meeting that they were going to and just assured him that there was great music and big crowds that were coming and would you please go and he went. And when he went, the young evangelist, this would have been in 1951, so 70 years ago right now, Billy Graham was preaching. And as he preached under that tent, the more he listened, the more angry Louis Zapparini became. So that when it was over, he cursed his wife, threatened to beat her because she had coerced him in going, uh, in going to that meeting. And he deeply resented what she was trying to accomplish by it. But strangely enough, he went the next night. And the next night. And came under great conviction and got saved. Gone were the days of liquor. Gone was the hate, the bitterness, the resentment. Can we just get right to it? Louis Zamperini changed. He was not the same man. And died just about three or four years ago, past 90 years of age, telling people about Jesus Christ, pointing people to salvation. Amazing. Over in St. Joe, Missouri, is a dear friend of mine. We talked about him today. Pastors of Riverside Baptist Church for a number of years. Before that, he was an evangelist, preached all over the country in revival meetings. He and his wife had a fifth wheel, and they traveled here and traveled there, and he preached in many, many meetings. I made his acquaintance for a good time. He worked out of the church that I pastored there in Oklahoma City, and to this day, he's a very, very dear friend. His name is Bill Marshall. Bill Marshall grew up down in southwest Oklahoma. His dad was a drunk. His dad took him to bars and got Billy drunk when he was seven, eight, nine years old. And all the men would would watch this little boy stagger around under the influence of beer and alcohol and laugh and have a hilarious time with it. Bill Marshall grew up drinking. He turned to drugs And he had married a wonderful girl that he thought, too, would be the answer to life. A good relationship with a good lady that is still his wife. But she couldn't answer the emptiness and the grip that sin had on his soul. And as he was at work, he said he wasn't a very good worker because he was drunk most of the time. But at work, a man started talking to him about Jesus Christ. And one day, Bill said that he came under this great conviction because he knew that the man was telling the truth. Something was going on inside of him. We know what that something was or who that someone was. That was the Holy Spirit of God. 
convincing him of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. That's what the Bible says he will do. And one day Bill Marshall humbled himself, called upon Jesus to be his Savior, and his life changed, completely changed. Oh, about five, six, seven, eight years ago, I was preaching in Florida, and I met a man by the name of Paul Hulk. Now, Paul is a uh, church, church builder, is what we should say. He's not a preacher. He's not a pastor, although he's happy to testify, and he's happy to fill a pulpit if he gets the opportunity. But he and his wife and maybe a couple of other guys, they go around. They help churches build. They help them remodel. And they do this as sort of a missionary effort to save thousands upon thousands of dollars for new churches that are getting started or church plants that have taken over an old building or such as that. And that's the work that he does. And in the time I was there, I got acquainted with him and he gave me a book. And the book is the testimony of his life. He was in and out of prison, all drug related, usually just a drug user, but finally as a drug dealer, and he was in prison and his future looked very, very, very bleak. And the chaplain that would come and preach at the prison invited him to come and start talking to him about the Lord. And when he talked to him about the Lord, Paul answered him and said, I'll tell you, I'll believe all of that when pigs fly. That's what he said. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. I'll believe that when pigs fly. And one day... Weeks later, he just decided, okay, some of the guys have really been pressuring. I'll go to the service. Just the day that man was preaching out of Mark chapter 5. And how that Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac and into the herd of swine. And how the herd of swine plunged into the sea under this demon possession. And then the preacher said, there are people who said that they would believe in Christ if pigs would fly. And he said, I'm here to tell you, pigs did fly. He got saved that day. And his life changed. Completely changed. Amazing. A highly educated religious man who hated Christ and hated churches and hated believers, was taking a trip on a road. He was taking a trip on the road that would lead to a place called Damascus. And there he was going to persecute churches. He was, according to the Bible, hailing men and women, suppressing them, making their life miserable, incarcerating them with authority to put them in prison. And he was trying to stamp out the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ and these churches that were scattering and spreading. But on that road to Damascus, many of you know very well that Jesus met him there. He met him and blinded him with light, put him on the ground. And he said, Saul, Saul, it is hard for thee to crick against the pricks. He said, who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecuted. And Saul was saved on that road to Damascus. Amen. Is this an understatement or what? His life changed. Amen. Jesus must needs go through Samaria. As he is resting at Jacob's well while the men go into Sychar so that they might buy food. The woman comes out of the city at the time of the day when women wouldn't be going out. 
She was that type of woman. She didn't want to identify with anyone. No one wanted to identify with her. She was looked down upon by all. She had a terrible reputation in the town. She was a lady laden, I said burdened and laden with sin and with guilt. When she came to that well, unexpectedly, Jesus spoke to her and said, give me water to drink. And they engaged in this conversation. And the next thing you know, you read it with me. She said, give this water to drink. And then Jesus explained to her and said, I that speak unto thee am he. And according to our text, she believed it. She received it. She believed that this is the Messiah. And shall we say, her life changed. Let me tell you a concept that you'll never find in the Bible. The concept that Jesus could come into a person's life and there be no change. I said it's the concept that Jesus could come into a person's life and there be no change. Now, I, I tell you, it's a very troubling thing in our day and time. It's a very, in any day and time, when there is the preaching of Christ, but there is no call to repent of sin. There is no call to confront them, uh, any individual, with their sinfulness before God. And the idea is pretty much, do you believe in Jesus? If so, walk the aisle. If so, come forward. In many evangelistic crusades, there are those that will say, if you want to believe in Jesus, raise your hand. Somebody is counting and 248 people received Christ that night because they raised their hand. And so often the case is that you meet people as you try to witness and as you knock on doors and as you engage people, whether in travel or whether it's a a soul winning outreach or whether it's a door knocking effort to try to uh, gain prospects and talk to people about the Lord. You find so many people that say, oh yes, I did that. No change came in their life. That is a concept totally, absolutely foreign to the Bible. It cannot be. That would be just about like saying, well, Katrina, the hurricane, has hit the Gulf Coast. So far, no changes that we can notice. Somebody said, well, that's absurd. Yeah, I get it. Uh, there's a report that Mount St. Helens just exploded and blew up. Some of you are old enough to remember that. And when the top of St. Mount Helens, but life goes on at normal at Mount St. Helens. Oh, no, it doesn't. I said, oh, no, it doesn't. Neither the day in 1993, May the 3rd of 1993, when a tornado came uh, to the southwest of Oklahoma City and came through Bridge Creek and some of the southwest suburbs there and came into the town of Moore, famous for tornadoes, which we live, um, less than, we live 100 yards from Moore right now. And so Moore is this famous city and it came across from way down southwest at Bridge Creek and came through Moore, southeast Oklahoma City, out through Dell City and Midwest City and 60 miles away. The thing was on the ground for like 75 miles and a wide path sometimes a mile wide. 
And the winds recorded in that are the highest, were the highest winds recorded on planet Earth at the time at between 310 and 318 miles an hour in that tornado and wrought devastation and killed 42 people that day. Wouldn't it be ridiculous to say that tornado came through the town on the ground, but life goes on as normal. No real change that came place, that, that took place. Some, somebody says, that can't be. That's ridiculous. Let me tell you something more ridiculous. To think that the one who has the power over the winds and the waves and has his way in the whirlwind and the one in whom we consist in whom we live and move and have our being, and the one who holds our next breath in his hand, and the one who created, I said, his father created everything that is by him, by that dynamic power, to think that this same person, Jesus, can come in to a person's life and nothing change is absurd. It's more ridiculous than an E5 tornado and no damage. It's more ridiculous than a Katrina-sized hurricane hitting the coast and nobody notices it. It's the same as a hundred-year flood destroying cities and flooding the country and nobody notices. No, friend, that's not going to happen. And I'm going to repeat one more time that this is a concept that is totally foreign to the Word of God. And right here we have a classic example of this, and this woman that came to the well. I want you to go back with me, if you would, uh, to verse number 27. Now, when the disciples came, now, what a, let me show you what a spectacular moment this was. Verse 27. <laughs> and upon this, when Jesus had just said to the woman, I that speak unto thee am he, Jesus is telling her, you know that the Jews look for a Messiah, you have even thought about it and anticipated it yourself. And Jesus said to her, you've just met him. I that speak unto thee am he. Now somebody said, Brother Sam, you said that she believed that. She embraced it. Right. Verse 27 says that. Well, no, it doesn't use the words. And she believed him and she received him and she trusted him. But look at, excuse me, look at the change that takes place in this woman. There's no way to explain this, but that she received the truth of who Jesus is. And the Bible says, look at verse 27. Upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. This is very out of the realm of their custom that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan or that a man would talk to a strange woman like that. It, they just didn't do that. But Jesus did. Jesus spoke to this woman. The disciples come up on that scene. Oh my goodness. They're blown away. They were, they were stunned that he talked to this woman. They probably looked at each other, didn't know what to say, felt awkward and didn't want to say anything. If you say anything, it's probably going to be the wrong thing. Because it said in verse 27, Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? Nobody said anything. Is this an amazing moment? Peter didn't even say anything. I mean, you would expect that he would have something to say, but he had nothing to say here. And none of the disciples spoke up. They were in stunned silence. It was an awkward moment. They looked at each other and nobody said a thing. As Jesus had just revealed to the woman that he is the Messiah and watched the woman. Now watch this. 
before they could ask or say anything, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Well, how do you think she said it? Kind of tippy-toeing into town and say, could I have your attention just a minute? How many of the men thought, how many men do you think would give her attention if she took this little subtle, uh, casual, laid-back approach to announcing that she's just met the Messiah? As a matter of fact, I think she was so full. I said that she had drunk so deep and that she was so full that probably she just forgot all about her personality. She forgot all about the way that people looked down their nose at her and her reputation, the disparity between her and the other women of the city and between the citizenry and between the men and the attitude that men had toward her, the looks that she would get. She's had five husbands. Now she's living with a man that is not her husband. This is one low-life person, this lady is. And she knew they thought that. She knew they said that. She knew they looked down their proverbial noses at her. She knew it. She knew it. But she couldn't help it. She goes into the city and said, I've met the Christ. Is, this man has told me, well, this would raise some eyebrows, wouldn't it? This man has told me all things that ever I did. Oh, brother. Because <laughs> they knew some of what she did. But this man knew everything she did. And said, and she's glad about it. No, I said, he just told her all things that ever she did, and she's glad about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know why? Because she knew this wasn't a guess in the dark. You knew, she knew he hadn't gained that information by talking to people in the town. She knew because of the Spirit of God that was a work in her soul when she met the Messiah and she met the Christ. This is the Christ. And she went into the town and she had to say it with great enthusiasm and great joy and great gladness. Stop here just a second. A lifetime of guilt it's gone. It's off her shoulder. The, the, the curse of condemnation of sin is now lifted by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's completely off of her. And, and the shame of her sin, it, it existed not as before. It existed no more. This woman was now, what shall we say, free? Sure, she's free. She's free from guilt. She's free from the shame. She's free from the condemnation. She's free from the burden, the heavy load of sin. And she goes into town free as she could be and said, it's not this, the Christ. Excuse me, lady, do you know what these people think of you? I don't really care what they think of me right now. I care what that man out there thinks of me. Amen. Well, I said all that to say a change took place in her life. An incredible change. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. She left the water pot. Now, it doesn't mean she never drank water again. It doesn't mean she didn't go back to that well. But it did mean this, that Jesus was so significant to her that this didn't matter a whit. It's the reason she went out there, yes. Do you have to have water? Yes. But that was way a back seat. And that was way second to the fact that she is all taken up with this person who had the power to know and who had the power to forgive her of her sin. 
And so the mundane things of life didn't mean that much to her anymore. I'll get to that when I have time. That's not what's on the front burner right now. Understanding and knowing who I am by reason of my encounter with Jesus the Christ. That's what matters to me now. And she not only left the water pot, but you saw it and we talked about it. Ran into the town and had to tell somebody. She had to go tell somebody. She had to tell the men of Psycho. The men that she knew hated her. The women that she knew hated her. The people that she knew. She was like an outcast in her own town and in her own city because of this hideous life that she had lived. And now she is free of it all. And she goes to tell him. I met Jesus one day. I dare say I'm amongst people, most of whom would testify. I met Jesus too. And you could tell when you got saved. You could tell when Jesus came into your heart. You could, you could tell that testimony. Why? I mean, I still, it's been 69 years, but I still love telling it. Bill Camelar wonderful pastor and preacher of the First Baptist Church in Perry, Oklahoma, an old-time man of God about the last old-time, old-fashioned preacher they had at that church to this very day was Bill Campbell. The next pastor led the churches into, into the church into the Revised Standard Version, just a watered-down message. My dad led us to be a part of an independent Baptist church. It was just starting in our town. So thankful for my dad's wisdom there and his courage to resign as a deacon of the big church in town, town of 5,000 people. It was a big church in town, you know, and my dad resigned as a deacon. We went to an independent Baptist church, but I remember Bill Camel getting up and preaching on hell. I was raised in a Christian home. My dad read the Bible at the table every morning, and we read the Bible every night. We'd have family prayer together. My sisters would pray and I would pray and my dad would pray and until my brothers got out of the house, they prayed. And my mom prayed. Well, we all uh, weren't, us kids weren't that spiritual, you know. We knew we should do this and it's good. But mom prayed for everybody in the world, you know. She'd pray and pray and pray. <laughs> and I can remember us thinking, oh boy, here we go, you know. And, and, uh, but mom loved the Lord and knew the Lord. We'd pray and I, I knew there was a hell. I knew from the Bible reading in our house. I knew from what preaching I'd been exposed to. I knew there was a hell. But there's something about this time when Bill Campbell was preaching. It was the first time I realized I was going there. The way I was, I was going to go there. I mean, I was six years old. I hadn't cussed. I didn't even know what cussing was. I, I, I'd never cussed. I, I'd never uh, robbed stolen. I never tried to kill anybody. I may have hit my sisters, but it was self-defense, honestly. It was <laughs> something like that. But I, look, look, my life wasn't loaded down with all of this past that I hope nobody ever finds about. That isn't where I was at six years age, of age. But I got convinced, not by Bill Campbell, but by the message that he was preaching that Jesus paid the price to keep boys like me out of hell. And the second Sunday that he preached on hell, that was his message. Mainly the reality of hell, yes, but what Jesus suffered so that we might not go to hell. 
That's what he preached about. That day I got saved. Somebody said, did your life change? Well, yeah, I remember the fear I had. I didn't have any more. I, I don't remember how many different things changed in my life. My sisters made it impossible to like them at that stage. And I, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I'm just saying, I, yeah, I mean, it did. But I look back and think, yeah, yes, my life changed because I had a keen sensitivity to what was right and what was wrong. Now, if I stood here and said, I always did the right thing, that would be a lie too. But there were times that I had acquaintances and friends that would do some of the most ridiculous things and have no conscience about it. And I couldn't do anything without getting eaten up about it and feeling guilty about it. Because I was guilty. You disobey God, you're guilty of disobeying God. I remember going forward at revival meetings or going forward at church and getting my heart right with God and asking God to forgive me and dealing with things like that. And I, and I look back and say, yes, my life was changed because take the restraints of the Holy Ghost, the influence of the Bible, and the things of Christ away from my life, and I have no idea where my life would have ended up. You met Jesus. Some of you met him as adults, maybe teen years, maybe late teen, early teen years, maybe adults. Not many people get saved after 40, but there's probably some in here that got saved in your adult life. You remember that change, don't you? I mean, come on, we all sang it a while ago. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought. Since Jesus came into my heart. Now, now look, I preach a lot of places in churches all over this country. And when I hear that song sung, it, the thing that troubles me, what a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. And then uh, the, the waves of joy come like sea billows roll. Do you ever stand by the sea and see the waves come in? I said, did you ever stand by the sea? My wife drug me off to Hawaii after we retired from the pastorate. And my favorite part of it, besides being with her after the first few days, and I had to get things right in my mind. But nonetheless, <laughs> I, we're standing out there on the island of Kauai, out there where nobody is, and the waves are just coming and coming and coming. And we were there, what, four or five hours, something like that. And they never stopped. And I got a feeling they're still coming out there. And they come, and people stand up and sing, waves of joy flood my soul like the sea billows roll with a countenance that says it's been a long time since they saw any joy yeah. of any kind. I wish God's people would think about what it's like when you go to the house of God and when we assemble. Did, did you know that when we assemble it's something when an unlearned read 1 Corinthians 14 when an unlearned man or an unbeliever comes in he is supposed to see something and hear something not just from the preacher but he is to be convinced of all and he is to be judged of all. And so help me as a pastor. I've watched people come in and sit there and I know how a lot of visitors are. They are far more interested in what everybody else is thinking about what the preacher is saying than what the preacher is actually saying. There are people that think like that. What are they saying? What's the response? So they look around at a typical Baptist church on a typical Sunday morning and it looks like it's a very depressing situation. I'm here and I just sang the song since Jesus came into my heart but there's nothing like a wave of joy in sight anywhere. It's certainly not on the countenance. 
It's certainly not on the body language. It's certainly not in the participation in the service with a hearty amen, which means I agree with the Word of God and the Word of God is true. And there are people that seem to suffer through and there are unbelievers that might walk in or the unlearned and look at the people of God and they may come to the conclusion. I think the preacher believes it. I'm not sure anybody else does. This one or that one may have had joy. But it sure doesn't look like a congregation of joy. I don't know what they were talking about. The waves of joy like the sea billows roll. <laughs> Where did that come from? I didn't see anybody that looked like it. I told a lot of Sunday morning crowds, I know you have joy. I know you're just running over with the joy of the Lord. But for some reason, somebody convinced you that you are more spiritual if you hide it. Don't let anybody know it. Don't let your countenance look happy. Don't smile at anyone. Don't pay attention while a group is up here singing. And don't nod your head and, uh, uh, and affirm that the message is good. And cheer them on by an amen or just by a smile and a nod of the head. I told somebody who was here Sunday morning. I went back and I met him and I talked to him. And I said, you know what? I'm shaking your hand. I want to tell you, I appreciate you. Well, you don't even know me. You just met me. I said, you're a good listener. <laughs> if you're a preacher, you're looking for good listeners. And the good listeners aren't the ones that can stare a hole through you. The good <laughs> listeners are the ones that act like I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Is everybody with me here? Yeah. yeah. And, and so if you met Jesus, I mean, shouldn't some kind of, uh, uh, if you look at some of the religions that we talked about uh, last night, we was talking about true worship. Well, there are some that the, the Spirit of God only bears witness to the truth. I said, the Spirit of God bears witness to the truth. And where there is a light, there is a deadness there. There's a spiritual deadness. They might conjure up some kind of enthusiasm, but there's a spiritual deadness that is there because of the absence of truth. The Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth. Amen. That's what he bears witness to. And so you, you take the fact that somebody is in a place where it's dead and truth is not being spoken. But my soul and body, we have the Bible. We have the truth. We have Jesus. God is our Father. We are his children based on the authority of his word. We have eternal life. We're not talking about, well, we have it if or we hope we have it, or we might be saved, or we'll just have to wait and see at the end. That isn't what my Bible teaches. My Bible teaches us that we can know that we have eternal life. How can you know that you have eternal life and not have joy in your soul? How can you know these things and be stoic about it? I don't get it. I, don't. I told my wife, I won't get on chairs anymore. I don't know how that happened. No, I'm serious. How in the world can that be? Did Jesus pass by? What kind of change did he make in your life? The young people's group, Sunday night. Man, that was a good song. And I thought they were heading to an old song I knew. I, I didn't know that song. That's a great song. Ought to be sung. We need to get the music for it. But uh, I'm telling you the old song that said... God made a change and the bass goes down deep. If it wasn't for this, I'd show you what a bass really sounds like. <clears throat> but anyway, the bass goes down deep and I'm, uh, he made a change. He made a change in me. He made a change. It's a basic fundamental part of knowing Jesus. He makes a change in your life. 
what if we started tonight and said, when did you get saved? We just took the time to go around the room. And uh, so when did you get saved? I got saved, uh, Brother Sam or Pastor Haggett. I got saved. Uh, he's conducting the service. Uh, uh, Pastor, I got saved in July of 1981. How old were you then? I was 26 years old. What change did he make in your life? I, uh, I go to church. Well, that's fairly elementary. I said that's a fairly elementary level. Now that you've been saved that long, what changes has he made? What changes, what's the latest change he made in your life? I wonder how that would go. What change did he make? Well, not everybody's an Apostle Paul. Well, boy, I, figured, I get that. But everybody is in the sense that they are not now what they were before. Amen. If any man be in Christ, come on, you know this passage. The love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that we which believe in him uh, have everlasting life. And, and he goes on to, to say uh, if, uh, that uh, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And old things are passed away and all things are become new. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? Change. Did he change your interests? She left the water pot there. No, I, I know she came back and got the water pot. No doubt she had to have water. She, because she got saved doesn't mean she doesn't drink water anymore <laughs> or need water. She had that. It just wasn't that important. Did he change your priorities? Did he change what gets priority in your life? Did he change your thirst, your desires? God in us is sure different than being without God in us. Amen. Did your appetites change? Did your passion and interest change? <clears throat> Did your attitude about this book change? This is the book, friend. <laughs> this is the book. I, I know it sounds weird, but I finished many a Sunday night service at Southwest. My wife would tell you, I didn't do it out of habit. There were just times that I knew God met with us and we had a wonderful time. And I just knew the reason we had a wonderful time is because we stayed in the book and we stayed with the book. And, and God worked and God worked in the hearts of his people. And I remember saying at the end of the service, let's just give thanks to God. And I just say, I love this book. I know it seems weird, but I didn't plan to do it. It just happened. I do. Love this book. Uh, the 119th Psalm where we were yesterday, I read the first stanza of it this morning, and that whole psalm is about the Word of God. That whole 119th Psalm, all 172, I think it is, verses of the 119th Psalm, it's about loving the Word of God. When you got saved and Jesus moved in, this is His Word. Did He change your desire for this Word? Is this book boring to you? I've had people say to me, I tried to read the Bible, it's boring. And this may not be the right thing to say, but I just say, no, you're boring. <laughs> this book is not boring. There are preachers that have tried real hard to make it boring, but it is not of itself boring. <laughs> 
It's not. It's not. No, sir. Did your attitude towards sin change? Well, what do you, when you confront people about sin, I mean, <clears throat> I witness to people on airplanes and travel and, you know, in different places. And when you confront them about sin, well, it's, well, I think I'm as good as a lot of people. Well, so what? That's not even the issue. I know a lot of people go to church. I wouldn't do a lot of things. They, I, I think I'm okay the way I am. It doesn't matter. When you stand before God, it's not going to be about you, God, and everybody else. It's just you and God. So how you're doing in relation to somebody else has absolutely nothing to do with anything. It's, it's a zero issue. It's you and God. Do you still justify sin? Or are you quick to confess sin and agree with God? God calls it a sin. I agree with God. It's a sin. There's only one way to deal with this sin. Claim the blood of Jesus Christ. Repent in my heart and ask for forgiveness towards God. Yeah. Did he make a change? This is going to sound a little sarcastic. I'm sure tonight so far you haven't picked up on any sarcasm. But this might sound a little sarcastic. But I, I just jotted down a question in my notes, and I said, what if, you can't, what if you cannot identify a time when Jesus changed your life? Because you mean something I've always believed. I've always believed. Well, in relation to your salvation, that's like somebody, uh, when were you born? Oh, I've all, shoot, I've, I've always been born. Well, not really. Actually, no. <laughs> what if a person can't identify? I wrote down some possibilities. Maybe you were so good you didn't need to make any changes. See, um, my wife, the Haggits know, my wife is a quiet, sweet, precious lady who loves to give her husband a hard time. And so um, we get in conversations with each other with people. And I would say, but Sandra, and I would point out something. And she'd say, well, I never even thought that way till I met you. <laughs> and I said, but Sandra, you, you had this attitude or you did this. And she said, yeah, well, that's why I never did that till I met you. And I came to the conclusion if she didn't, never met me, she wouldn't even have got saved. <laughs> But we know better than that, don't we? We know better than that. I used to say that about my pastor's wife that I, when I was an associate. Got a lot of points with her that way. I said, Miss Jones, I can't believe you ever had to get saved. You're such a wonderful lady and everything. Now, I knew she was a sinner and she had to get saved. I understand that. But I'd say that. And she knew it wasn't so, but she loved to hear it. You know, so <laughs> I, I, I got points with her that way. Yeah. Well, we know that's not possible. We know that when God looks down upon heaven, he doesn't look down and say in Psalm 14 or Psalm 52, God doesn't look down and say, there's a good one right there. I can save that boy right there. He's a good one. As a matter of fact, when he looks down, he sees that there is none good. No, not one. We've all gone astray. We have all gone our own way. We're like sheep that have gone astray and away from God. And there is none that doeth righteous, no, 
not one. Isn't that right? So we know if God didn't make a change in your life, we know that it's not because there were no changes needed. Amen. Yeah, we know that. Uh, okay, maybe because you're who you are, God made an exception. Everybody else I'm going to, but not you. You've always had your way. You were the youngest child or middle child or whatever you were. You always got your way at home and you got your way at school and you got your way at work. So, okay, you're the one that doesn't need to make any changes. Now, come on. We know that. God doesn't choose favorites of his children. The Lord chasteneth every son whom he receiveth, every child of his for what child is his son is he that the father chasteneth not if a man say I'm a child of God and doesn't know anything about chastisement then he makes an illegitimate claim that he's a child of God yeah. Hebrews chapter 12 yep. maybe it's that uh, if God didn't make a change maybe he wanted to keep some Christians at a very carnal and selfish level so it wouldn't look like it's impossible to be a Christian to non-Christians No, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Now, every one of us that are saved, God predetermined and foreordained in our life that he's going to be at work in our life. He said, all things work together. Paul said this, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So the day you got saved, sir, and the day you got saved, man, the day you got saved, young men and young ladies and boys and girls, the day you got saved, God predetermined something upon your life. And that is that he would be at work to conform you to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. We don't arrive, please, we don't arrive at Christ's likeness by ourselves. We have to have the hand and the work of our father. And when Jesus moves in and there is no change, no, it's unthinkable. It's impossible. It's absurd to think so. He is, I started to have us go read 1 Corinthians, but for the sake of time, I'm not. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God and it is what else? Somebody want to tell me? The power of God. Read 1 Corinthians 1. It is the wisdom of God and it is the power of God. And if you want to look at the Apostle Paul, he testifies that himself. How can a man go from where he was as a Pharisee and a persecutor and a hater of Jesus and his church to where he was to where he actually spent his life for the sake of the churches of Jesus Christ? How did that happen? Christ in him. The dynamic power of Jesus in him. Well, Brother Sam, you don't know my personality. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to sound ugly, but your personality has nothing to do with the issue. I said it has nothing to do with the issue. I think we'd be amiss if we didn't mention another possibility. It could be there's no change because he never came in. We, we can't ignore I, I, I refuse to preach sermons that make saved people doubt their salvation. I just despise that. But at the same time, we can never apologize 
for confronting one another with the Word of God. And the Word of God says that we are challenged by the Apostle Paul to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. If we look at our lives and realize we're not moving to Christ-likeness, He's not made changes in my life. I still am at a level of carnality and worldliness hardly different than when I was saved. Little or no changes come into my life. Excuse me just a second. We might ought to look and examine, did I truly trust Jesus as my Savior? Amen. We can never forget a Judas, can we? I said we can never forget a Judas. One of you will betray me. The disciples said, yeah, we know who that is. Point to Judas. <laughs> no question about that. That's not what happened. That is not what happened. They said to him, apparently one by one, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Judas was void of any spiritual life in him, and the disciples of Jesus did not get it and didn't even recognize it. True or false? It's exactly right. It's exactly right. Again, I wouldn't take a person that has a solid testimony that they know Jesus can identify the working of Christ and God in their life and the Holy Spirit in their life. I, I'm not, I'm not going to try to make them doubt their salvation. But if you're among those that sit here and you say, well, I mean, I go to church, but I mean, you know, I don't know what kind of church. I'm not a preacher. <laughs> oh, boy, what a mistaken thought that is. The preachers are supposed to live at this level and everybody's supposed to live at another. We're all supposed to be Christ-like. We're all supposed to grow in Christ. We're all supposed to be nurtured and fed and grow in the Lord. There's no stopping place ever. Yeah. You can't forget Judas. You can't forget that Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall inherit eternal life. For many shall say to that me in that day, Lord, have we not cast out devils in thy name? Lord, have we not done works for you and many mighty works in your name? And Jesus said, then will I say to them, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I what? Never knew you. But if he never came in, if he was never truly received, if there was never genuine confession of sin, repentance toward God, faith only in Jesus Christ. Some of you probably have read or heard of the name D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You've probably heard that name before. And this British man came in the late uh, 60s and I believe it was 70s and traveled around the United States and preached in churches all over the country before he went back to his home in England. And when he got back to England, he said the one thing that troubled him is how many people said that they believed they had eternal life, they were sure they were going to heaven. And when I would press them as to the assurance of their knowing that they were forgiven, never mention the name Jesus. Never even mention his name. When there is no eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. He is life. To know him is to know life. Changed. Changed. If you're a serious Christian, you'll add a word to that. Being changed. Being changed never stops. 
Let's just bow our heads a moment. You see, if I can talk to you in just a second, don't quit me, please. What I didn't tell you a while ago was there a time when the man that saw the pigs fly, he got out of prison, he went to work for the Lord, he got into situations where he was disillusioned, and for a period, he went, he started making his way back to the old crowd and the old world. And I never did tell you this about Bill Marshall, but after he got saved, he joined a church where there was a lot of shouting and a lot of hallelujahs and a lot of this, but there was very little godly living. He got so disillusioned, he went back and did some more drugs, shot some more dope. But I want to praise God that Christ in them was real and he kept working in them. Paul Holt got it all straight and realized, I can't focus upon men and follow Jesus. I have to focus upon Jesus. And ever since that time, he came back, the Lord restored him. And ever since that time, for years now, many years, he has been focusing upon Jesus, who's never failed him yet. I said, he's never failed him yet. And Bill Marshall came to the time when he realized he's about to lose his home again. And he realized somebody took the Bible and helped him. And he realized, if I pay attention to how men live, I'll probably have ups and downs all my Christian life. If I'll just be devoted to the person of Jesus Christ, then he'll lift me above the disappointments that you can see in people. They came back. Maybe you were changed, but you need to come back. I said, maybe there's somebody here that he didn't make a difference in your life. And you know that you got saved, but something happened, something that disillusioned you, something that disappointed you. And what you need to do is get back to where you got saved. And that is come back to Jesus. He doesn't lie. He doesn't fail. He cannot fail. So if there's somebody here tonight and you say, I have no assurance that Jesus came into my life. I know the words to that song, but I live with no real assurance that Jesus came into my life. I pray for that soul tonight that they would be saved and that they would meet the Messiah, that they would believe in Jesus only to be saved. I pray they would not trifle with their soul not hope it all turns out right anyway, no, but to know their sins are forgiven, to know the Savior. Come meet a man that told me all that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Yes, dear lady, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, and he's still seeking to save the lost. If there's somebody in this room, oh God, you know, you know, you don't need information from me about it. You know if there's somebody in this room that's never been saved, oh, that they might humble themselves and come to know Christ tonight. If there are some that, oh, yeah, I got disillusioned too.
I got disappointed. Circumstances came. Somebody let me down. Somebody I trusted turned out to be phony as a $3 bill. Oh, God, I pray they might come back. Might come back and put their faith in you, not man. Might come back and be devoted to Jesus, not people that say they represent Jesus. Yes, Lord, I pray there'd be a time of reviving again for those who need reviving. Thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking the load of sin. Thank you for taking the guilt. Thank you for taking the condemnation. Thank you for taking the reproach upon yourself. You bore the reproach that belonged to us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for life in Christ. I pray that we would be people that would have the exuberance of this woman. Is not this the Christ? Come see. The men must have looked at her like, why would we believe you? I'm not asking you to believe me. Come see the man that told me all that ever I did. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?